welcome to An Unexpected Launch, a podcast sharing stories of people thriving after an unexpected circumstance. I'm continually amazed by the stories of those who endure the unthinkable, who don't give up, who use the challenging life event to propel them forward. As I was sharing my story of navigating unexpected life circumstances with a friend, she suggested that I speak with Cindy. Cindy also has a story. Although different from mine, there are parallels in the processing of a traumatic situation and using that challenge to push you higher, to fuel your growth, and to find your strength. Cindy is an author of a memoir on surviving childhood sexual abuse, an active philanthropist, and a successful businesswoman. Despite, and maybe in spite of, enduring years of sexual abuse at the hands of her father, Cindy propelled herself forward, discovering strength, courage, and her voice, and is inspiring others in countless ways. Cindy, welcome to an unexpected launch. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining. So Cindy, you describe yourself as a mother, a wife, a friend, and a writer. You're also a daughter. So let's begin there. Could you tell us a little bit about your family? Well, my mom's a first-generation Mexican from San Francisco, and she comes from this warm, large family with very involved parents. My dad um, was born in Germany during World War II. He was raised by a single mother, and also many aunts raised him, too. He had a tough childhood, often lacking for food, emotional connection, and support. If it's true that opposites attract, well, they sure did. Um, I used to look at my parents and wonder, like, how did this happen? How did these two get together? Because they were so opposite. Mm -hmm. So tell me about some of your your favorite childhood memories. Yeah, I was just your average kid. I came from a middle-class family. We had Sunday night dinners. I had lots of friends. I played kickball on the cul-de-sac every evening until it was time to come home. Do you remember kickball? I do. I played it as well. (laughs) And I loved it. (laughs) I loved it, too. Uh, I was athletic. I swam. I rode my bike. I ran track. I played with my Barbies, which I have to say was one of my favorite things to do. Uh, We had daily chores just like everybody else. My mom was this amazing cook. Um, who always had something yummy cooking on the stove. I was really close to my mom, and I adored my sister. I have to say, I have really good memories of growing up, despite what happened to Mm -hmm. me. Well, and it's interesting, and and we'll get into this a little bit more as we talk, but as you shared your experience, it sounds very typical. It sounds like from the outside looking in that everything was was wonderful and happy. And so I had mentioned earlier that you're a writer and you have a memoir. It's called Under the Orange Blossoms. Mm-hmm. And this chronicles your, your journey of healing after being sexually abused by your father. And on your website, Cindy Talks, you cite that one in four girls and one in six boys have been sexually assaulted. So you are among the one in four how old were you when your father began sexually abusing you? I honestly don't know because I was so young. But my earliest memories of abuse was five years old. And I just have to say that when I hear myself say that, the word, I think, ick 
comes to mind. Maybe that's because what a five-year-old would say. I, I don't know. But um, it embarrasses me, and I find it repulsive. It's just disgusting. So you have daughters, and when your daughters turned five years old, did you think, did you at that time have any thoughts around, oh my gosh, I was five years old, and look how y- you realize when you have children how young that is. Right. Did that bring up any memories for you at that point? I think throughout their entire growth through their childhood, I would look at them and I would reflect back and think, gosh, what, what, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And then I kind of just go, you know what? That was something that happened to me and this is beautiful what's happening to my kids. This is, I just embrace the beauty of what my children were experiencing. But I did, I constantly reflected back. Well, and I just want to comment. You you had made a comment about being embarrassed, and and I just as I as I heard you say that, just it made me feel sort of, gosh, that's nothing that you need to be embarrassed about. That's something that your dad did, and he needs to own. And and I I understand where you come from, feeling embarrassed. You know, sometimes in my situation. I felt embarrassed, and then I think, but I actually didn't do anything. I I was part of this situation, but I didn't do anything that I should feel embarrassed by or shamed by. So I just wanted to to say that I understand how you feel, but know that you don't own that. Right. So as we think about how this could happen, and you're five years old, and Essentially, there has to be some level of control for this to to happen and then to continue. So how did your 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 father control that situation where he was able to abuse you and you didn't tell anybody? Uh, my dad was a really intelligent man and he was incredibly manipulative. He played a lot of mind games with me. Um, when he started abusing me, he explicitly told me not to tell my mom or anyone else. If I did, he threatened to hurt my sister and my mom, and they were everything to me. So his words carried a lot of weight, and he knew it, and I kept quiet. Uh, As the years passed on, I started to argue and say no, but he resorted to emotional and physical abuse. Eventually, I started to rebel, and I was incredibly angry and started talking back or was passive-aggressive. I just didn't know how how to make it stop. I I did have to say, I had this epiphany when I was nine years old that he was like another bully on the playground. And when you have a bully, you either do what they do or physically fight back, verbally fight back, and lastly, be passive, you know, just you know, play possum, just let it go, you know, try to pretend that it doesn't even exist. And I did every single one of those things. Um, The only way I knew how to control, or he knew how to control me, was just to hit back harder. Eventually, that didn't mean anything to me, and I lost my fear of him. I didn't even care if he hit me. I think I was just kind of numbed out. Um, Part of the epiphany 
was the realization that he was the one that was out of control, and that's why he needed control. Just like all bullies are, you know, they're insecure. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about not only sexual abuse, but verbal abuse, physical abuse, how did that impact your childhood? Mm. I really didn't understand the extent of what the abuse had on me until I was much older. When I was a child, I felt more confused, alone, and angry. But it wasn't until my adult years that I began to work through the abuse. Trauma has a way of bubbling up somewhere. I think, by nature, I'm a lighthearted person, but the abuse taught me about hiding, shame, fear, secrecy, and sex, things that quickly turned me into an adult a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. So at some point, um, how old, you, at some point you finally do find the courage to stand up to your dad. You, you found that voice to confront him about the abuse. How old were you when, when that happened? I was 10. You were um, 10. I was 10 when I finally found my voice and had the courage to fight back. I, I want, I mean, I did fight back, but it was in a very subtle, like subtle ways, like passive aggressive or, you know, kind of talking back, but not fully talking back, where you're just raging angry and you're talking back. Um, I honestly think it was my anger, my rage that led me to say no to really say no, like no more. And my dad's reaction basically was to hit me harder and threaten me more. Um, I became fearless because I was so fed up and I basically had nothing to lose. That's pretty amazing when you think how young 10 is, mm-hmm. that you found that in yourself um, despite the fear um, so I know that he he manipulated you into not saying anything to anybody. Did you did you want to? Did you have a desire to say anything? I all I wanted to say something, but I was so terrified that my mom and my sister, who I they were everything to me, was you know, were going to be affected by this in some way. So I that was the control factor. That's how he's able to manipulate you, um, knowing that if you said something that perhaps they would be harmed. And so you essentially absorb all of the harm in protecting them. Right. So, So you stand up for yourself around the age of 10 and you tell your, your father no more. Um, and so he stops abusing you around that age. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and why you think he did stop? When I began to fight back against the physical abuse, the sexual abuse oddly stopped at the same time. But looking back, part of me feels that my father realized that he had no more control. And I believe that the sexual abuse stopped mostly because I was going through puberty and my body was changing and I was no longer in a prepubescent body. So I think it was a combination of those things that resulted in the ending of abuse. The, the body changes where I was no longer a child and I was not a, a, he didn't find me attractive 
And I was kind of a pain in the ass. I was just verbally saying anything that came to mind and nothing he could do, he could control me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there had to have been tremendous relief in that stopping. Were you fearful that might it start again? Um, because at the time, you don't know that he's attracted to to younger girls. Um, so was that? did you always, in the back of your mind, have a fear that the sexual abuse could start up again? Um, well, we moved overseas. Um, and it's like, it was like stepping into a new world. So it was a new household, new friends, a foreign country. Um, my dad was a different person. My body was a different person. I was the mindset. Um, I just felt stronger. And so I got a chance to rewrite everything, like rewrite my life over. And he was a different person. And I think, I really think that's, that was a big key to the next step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's incredible that at that age, you had that ability to take that new situation and really allow yourself to move forward. Um, so tell me a little bit about how the abuse shaped you as, as an adult and as you think about a wife and a mother, how do you think that your, your abuse has, has shaped those roles for you? The, a sex, the sexual abuse affected my self-esteem for sure. Um, it dampened my voice and made me very cautious of others. And I'm still cautious to this day of people. Uh, the abuse also affected the way I raised my children. I was very protective of them and who they were allowed to be around. I made a point to keep an open dialogue with, with all the kids about their sexuality and their bodies so that nothing was going under the radar or being hidden. Um, we talked about appropriate touching very early on and made sure they had a voice. As a wife, the sexual abuse came in our intimate life. There were times where I had flashbacks and I had to consciously remind myself that my love for my husband does not have to be influenced by my past. So you, you talked about being protective of the relationships that your children had and being very protective of them. What type of relationship did your father have with your children? Mm, I know this is going to be controversial. I felt that it was important for my children to know who their grandfather was. I told my kids my history when they were young adults mainly because I felt they could handle the information with more of a mature mindset. Um, I felt that they should well, that they should establish how they feel, their feelings for their grandfather without any of my influences. I just, I just wanted them to see him for who he was without my history in the back. And I felt that I protected them. Um, that was, that was my take on it at the time, and I honestly don't regret doing that. Um, ironically, though, my kids didn't care for him, so they weren't close to him. Um, I allowed my dad to come into, you know, to visit, and but it was extremely controlled. Uh, he was allowed over for holidays and occasional dinners, and while in the house, I made it clear to him every single time he visited 
that he was only allowed in the dining room and the restroom. He was not allowed to play with the kids in any bedroom or be part or be in any other part of the house, I completely monitored him. I know, I know for a fact he was completely annoyed by my rules, and it was a lot of work, it was a ton of work. But they did get a chance to know their grandfather, and I did feel that they were safe. Mainly because I knew he wasn't attracted to teenagers, he was attracted to prepubescent children. Um, when I made the decision to share with my kids my history, interesting enough, their feelings for their grandfather changed. Each child had something, it's actually kind of hard for me to say, each child had something different to say about him. Um, some became completely distant from him. They were disappointed. They were angry, disgusted, afraid, betrayed. And several of the kids felt that he should have faced criminal charges. I was, I was surprised at how it changed them, even as adults. Uh, I have a special needs son and he seemed relieved because he thought that I never really struggled in life. And he thought that everything looked easy for me. So after I shared my story, he said that he felt that he had a lot more in common with me and that he could work through anything after listening to my story. My, I, so I have four kids, um, two sons, two daughters. And one daughter said she understood me a lot more and felt that mental illness needs to be more of a priority in this country. The other daughter said that she never let any obstacles hold her down after listening to my story, that she had a choice to always be happy, and I was her role model. My oldest son, he was glad that I never told him, and he was very disappointed with him, really disappointed. I still don't, we still really haven't had a complete conversation about that, so that's something I need to talk to him about him late, later on. It was hard. Yeah. It was really, really hard. Uh, and when I saw my kids go through that transition, I realized with all that hard work of monitoring my dad that it was the right thing to do because I watched them in their late 20s go through this transition. And they felt so betrayed, betrayed by their instincts and betrayed by a family member. It was hard. Yeah, you, 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 as a child, you, you don't want to imagine that somebody is, is intentionally harming somebody else in your family, and particularly from the perspective of a child. They're so protective of their moms. And so on the one hand, so hard for them to hear that and to know that you went through that. And on the other hand, really how you inspired your children in ways that, um, that, you know, they learned something new about you that really gave them a, a new way to look at you and be so inspired by you. And I think that that's incredible that you can take what happened and and use that in a way where there's positive does come out of it. And that's one of the things, you know, as I think about your book and your intention 
Um, and we, we've talked about just the role that your therapy played in, in your healing. So could you talk a little bit more about the role therapy played in your healing and what recommendations you have? Because obviously when we talk about the statistics, there are so many people who've been in your situation. Right. And so as they're seeking the best type of therapy and, and a therapist um, that they can identify with, what, um, what pearls of wisdom do you have to share? Hmm. The, I have to say therapy was the most crucial part in me healing or with, with the process of healing. Um, for several years, I spent more time in therapy than anywhere else. And I, I think it was 18 years. I think I had therapy for 18 years, you know, off and on. Um, but I wanted so bad to work through my past trauma and I wanted to live the healthiest life I could. The more therapy I went through, I learned more about myself. And it really motivated me to heal. It was painful. It was incredibly painful and hard work. Uh, As far as types of therapy, I found the most helpful were trauma therapies. I would go through a variety of therapists to find the right one. I think finding a therapist too is, it's an individual thing. It's almost like, kind of like a marriage and if it doesn't, if what they're saying doesn't resonate with you, then find somebody else, you know, find somebody where it fits and they respect your opinions and stick with that person. And sometimes that dwindles off. You're like, okay, I'm done. Like who's next? And then you can find just some, you know, find another person and they give you a different insight, which is always another part of your healing. And I think healing is, is such this evolution because I myself, as I've gone through, um, seeing a therapist there are times that I would go weekly and I would I would need that just to make it through the next week and then I wouldn't go for six months and then something would come up I mean I think these journeys are so circuitous and it's not a straight path and it's not once you've healed you're done and right. you move on right because things come up that you maybe didn't anticipate or in my case as my children have processed what's happened and as they continue mm-hmm. to grow there are new situations that emerge in our family right that you know my parents were married have been married for more than 50 years um and i didn't have a gay family member so i i just as a parent wasn't sure how to manage some of these issues in, in helping my children manage them. And so, you know, I would find myself going back to therapy at different points for different different things. And I do think that it's, um, it could be more than one person or it's, it's uh, it might be at a future time that you right. might want to seek again. I think that's why it took me 18 years because it was at different stages. My development, developmentally, my mm-hmm. children were different. I also, my relation evolved differently um i mean it's a process how old were you when you first started going i was uh oh i think i might have been 19 Mm -hmm. yeah and what what led you to to take that first step because i think for a lot of people that first step of acknowledging that therapy could be useful or that you need it can be really hard i think it was uh a realization that I had to do something for myself. And it's funny that you're saying this, that I remember telling my mom, you know, I'm and my dad that I'm going through therapy. And my dad 
and my mom were like, what do you mean you're going through therapy? And they were, they were really threatened by it. They were like, well, we don't, well, what are you saying? Well, what are you doing? And I think that was, when I heard that, it made me realize that I was on the right course, that it was the right thing to do. Like listening to their fear, I thought, I'm scared too, but I think this is the right thing to do. Well, and I'm sure particularly for your your father being exposed um, and having what he did being talked about. And and in fact, initially when you confront your, your father, he, he denies. Um, and it gets to a point in his life. And, and there's a, I, I can't wait for your book to come out because a lot, of, a lot more details than we're talking about today will be included in your book. And so I'm trying to stay a little bit um, higher level so we don't Thank take you. too much away from that. But you ultimately, your father agrees to sit down to be interviewed by you. And you you ask him some pretty tough questions. So what gave you the courage to sit across from your father face-to-face and and interview him about the sexual abuse? So my father denied that any abuse ever happened. He just completely denied it. And anytime I brought it up, he would kind of, gosh, he would make this face at me and kind of, make this face and kind of look at me kind of like, why, why do you say those things? Because he was in such denial. And then he would give me kind of like this puppy dog eyes. Like, I, I just don't understand why you're saying these things. It drove me bananas, but I would always say it. And then when he would come to the house, I would remind him of my rules. So it was this dance that we had done for years. I was telling him that he had done this. These were my rules. I used to say, you know, you made your choices, so now I'm making my choices. So if you want to come into the house, these are my choices. And um, since he was in denial, it was basically my word against his word. However, at the end of his life, I started taking care of him. And oddly enough, over breakfast in his retirement home, I asked him, you know, like, why, Dad? Like, why did you do those things? And he finally alluded to abusing me. I was completely floored. I never really expected him to admit it, but I always asked it anyway. And I must have asked him the question, had to be hundreds of times. And it was just denial. So I was completely floored, but he started talking. And um, I was so shocked that I actually stopped him. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. And then I started writing down some notes and I just wanted to make sure that I was hearing it right. I think um, he denied it so much and then kept on questioning me like, well, these things never happened that sometimes I even questioned, did this really happen? And (laughs) when I would go through one of those stages, I would think like crazy people make you feel that way. Crazy people will make you feel like you're crazy for even asking the question or for feeling feeling those things. So um, I kind of collected myself and um, listened to him, what he had to say. And as he started talking more about it, I asked if I could come back and he said, he agreed, yes. And when I started listening to the mindset, like his mindset of what 
a true pedophile is, I found it fascinating and at the same time disgusting. The more I took notes, I thought I had to write, that I have to write a book on this because other victims may find some insight from this. Uh, I have hours of audio recordings where I interviewed him. I later interviewed him on a video too. And those are up on YouTube and my website on Cindy Talks. I have to say, while doing the interviews, I wanted to vomit. I, I did, I felt sick to my stomach. But um, even though it was horrifying, I tried to be as objective as I can and non-judgmental, calm, and so I could just really hear his truth and how he felt. And looking back, honestly, I don't even know how I kept my composure. I think I just was so desperate for truth that I just did it. You so you just essentially get into a zone. Yeah. And I have to imagine that after after years of denial, when he finally admitted what a sense of relief and validation, because as you were saying, you were questioning yourself, did this really happen? And so it gives you, I'm sure when he finally admitted some sense of um, not control, but just that it, it allows you to start developing a different type of healing mm-hmm. um, for him to to finally admit that. Right. Um, so, you know, often sexual, I think more often than not, sexual abuse stays a secret. I think is, is some of the things that you've, you've been talking about of feeling shame and feeling embarrassed. And so you're afraid to share that. Right. And it's just not openly discussed. So tell us a little bit about what led you to write your book and what do you hope to gain in sharing your story? Well, sexual abuse is still a very much uh, a taboo subject to talk about. I remember sharing um, with a group of girls about the abuse. And I mean, I didn't know them that well. So I just thought, well, you know, I'll share my story. And I listened to their responses. And this was one of, when I heard this, this was one of the factors of why I felt so compelled that I need to share. And so, some of the girls were so surprised because I never alluded to my past. Um, one girl said, well, you don't look like you've been abused. You look so normal. Your life seems so normal. Um, I had one lady, well, actually there was a few ladies in there that were so compassionate that I didn't even know what to do with their compassion. I was just like, oh, like, oh, okay. Because I've lived with it so long. I was just like, oh, okay. And I also had some girls there that were so angry. Um, they had like real anger and they were like, people like that should be shot. They should be castrated. And I was just like, oh, like, oh, okay. You know, like, I think I hit a chord. And for me personally, it brought, um, it brought out a lot of lingering feelings of shame and vulnerability. I remember this mother who kind of leaned over, you know, discreetly, and she told me that she doesn't know anybody that that happened to. So 
it would never be a concern of hers. And it made me realize even more that no one likes to talk about the subject. And it's because it's so uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about our sexuality or anything that's happened in our sex life. And yet the statistics are one out of four, one out of six, one out of four girls, one out of six boys. And I looked around the room and I thought, well, we're a party of 10. So statistically, one of these girls, probably something has happened to them because it happens to people of any color, any age, they're from all different social economic backgrounds and all over the world. So it was kind of like a like a like planting a seed where I thought I, I need to talk about this and um, and just break that cycle that taboo cycle of that talking about sexual abuse is something that people don't talk about. But like just breaking that cycle through awareness and just having open conversations. Um, as a young girl, I didn't have anyone to talk to, I, and I felt really alone. I would, um, in secret, pick up books on sexual assault to find out what other people had done to recover. And when I read them, I would get re-traumatized all over again, and I would lose hope, and then I would just stash it back down inside. Um, so this book that I wrote, it's what I did, and... It's, I do talk about what happened, but it's more focused on the process of how I healed. And that's really mainly the, the focus I have and what my relationship was like and the hiccups I had through that and how I have a healthy relationship with my husband and how I have healthy children and how do you talk about this amongst your children and other family members who are resistant to even acknowledge that something like this could happen in your family. And I have a, an aunt, which I thought was really interesting when I started to write. She said, why would you share this? Like, why are you talking about this? You come from such a really good family. And I thought, precisely, we come from a really good family. And I am the epitome of, of that. I need to this is perfect. I need to start talking about this. So, because it affects every family member, and it's not just the victim, it affects every family member. It affects your children, it checks, affects your relatives. It's pretty, it's pretty daunting, like when you start to dig through it and start to sort through all the different aspects of that. You know, I think that y your comment about keeping it a secret because sexuality is something that's so taboo to talk about. And mm -hmm. I think that just my podcast and some of the things that I've shared about my personal life and individuals who've been in my situation, it, it causes discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly why I decided to do this. And I will tell you that I had this idea to do a blog and a podcast, but I really waffled for months because I thought, well, that is a really uncomfortable situation. And like you, I thought, I think that people will find value in, and again, it's not just knowing the details of the situation, but it's how did you move forward despite that? And that's what has been so fascinating for me is 
how did other people move through their situation? And it doesn't matter that my situation was that my husband was gay and that my son was in an accident and your situation was sexual abuse. I think that we have this shared commonality of how do you take that situation? How do you take something like that and still find beauty and and growth and, and take that? And you're taking this and you've written this book and I think it's incredible because you remove that because you are putting yourself out there. It gives the gift to somebody else to, to raise their hand and say, that happened to me too. Right. And I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I, that, you know, that this didn't ha- this wasn't something that I did that caused this. This is something that happens to women and men. And look at what she did to move forward. I can do that too. Right. And so it gives people hope. It gives people hope. Um, what did you learn during the process of writing your book? What did I learn? Uh, actually, <laughs> I, I, as much as I wanted to share, it was the hardest thing because it re-traumatized me to go back into detail and write about it in detail. It's one thing if it happens to you, you could sort it out in therapy and you can kind of go, okay, I moved on. But to go back and experience those memories in detail and write about them and then try to sort out how you want to present that, it it was hard. And I sometimes I would write something. I needed a whole, an entire month to like recoup from that. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> what was your question? Oh, no, what did you, I was just thinking about <laughs> no, how hard that was. No, that's it. Was I was asking you what you learned during the process, and I think that that's really powerful because when I was inter when I was because I, I do the same thing when I'm preparing for a podcast. I think about the questions that I want to ask, and so when I was preparing the questions for two of my three boys that I've interviewed, I will tell you, I was sitting on this couch here mm-hmm. and sobbing because there were so many things that as I, it's been three and four years, but as I went back and I started to think about that and process it, it really is emotionally draining. Yeah, it's emotionally draining. And so I I. But you do it, but you do this because if you share your story, you know you're helping somebody else. And I think that was my biggest thing. Maybe that's my biggest thing that I learned, that no matter how hard it was to like recall and go through this and write things in detail, that I would put that, I would put my computer down and I would say out loud, I'm doing this for myself and for somebody else and hopefully this makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And then I think that was the thing that carried me on, that I hope this makes a difference for somebody else. And I have no doubt that that it will. And you know, you've really risen above a very traumatic relationship with your father. What gave you strength during your journey of healing? Friends, friends like you. You know, I think um, I have... Friends and family have given me incredible strength. And my husband, I have a really close relationship with my husband. And I, I'm also very close to my children. And I think they've been the biggest, or I would have to say even hugest strength in my life. Um, they were very supportive. Um, I also wanted to be healthy for myself. It wasn't just about my family. 
it, I wanted to be a better person and a healthier person. And when I would look at the faces of my children, I always knew I was on the right track and it was the right thing to do. So what gave you inspiration during, during this period? Hmm. Uh, okay. This was a process. Mm -hmm. So first, I think um, you have to surround yourself with people who feel like sunshine. And you can always tell who those people are because they never really say anything negative about another person. They're more non-judgmental and they kind of live and let live. They move through life basically with love. Um, they're not the people who make jokes or gossip on behalf of other people or their moments of downfall. I think you have to trust your intuition and really open to those who have an open heart. I found this process to be disappointing, disappointing because you really don't want to sort through your friends like that. And when you share something that's so, when you're in such a vulnerable state and you share something and you don't get the response that you found helpful or supportive, you, you realize like, oh, that's not a person I could call on. And people surprise you too. They'll, come, you, they'll surprise you and you're like, oh, I didn't even know that, that, I didn't even know that, that about that person. And so it's like a little gift. So it can be disappointing and it is painful, but they are, but you're, those people are out there. I think you have to find that tribe out there. Um, I do this, um, I do a lot of mantra work for inspiration. Um, I use a lot of positive quotes and I stick them on my bathroom mirror and um, I say them out loud. And I've been doing that since I've been 16 years old. And it kind of helps me shift that energy. And when that mantra or that quote doesn't work for me, then I find another one. And sometimes it's kind of ridiculous. Like I might have 16 different post, little post-its all over my mirror. And um, it just kind of shifts that energy for me. And that's something that I've always used. Uh, and I actually write about that in my book. I think nature inspires me, you know, sometimes just a good old fashioned walk. Um, I could shift that energy or a good workout. Reading what other people do and uh, finding what they did through adversity and what gave them strength, that always helps me. Um, I do a quick meditation every single day and I give thanks um, for everything. Really, I, I give thanks for everything that I do. I try to focus on what I do have and not what I don't have. Um, if I start to slip in that, I just kind of go, but I have this and, you know, this is what I have, you know, so I try to focus on that and just kind of stay in kind of like a task, like, okay, but I have this. I have my health. I, you know, I have healthy children. Uh, I just try to focus on what's positive and then just kind of dismiss the negative or what I don't have. Um, I also realized that when, when you want to really live in your higher self, that you have to kind of forgive yourself and anything that doesn't resonate with that, 
like with anger, like if you're attaching yourself to anger, that's not really living in your high with with a higher purpose or in your higher self. And you just have to like work through that and just let it go as quickly as you can and find whatever that is. If it's a walk or whatever it is, journaling, you have to find a way to work through that. Otherwise it just kind of binds you, holds you down. Yeah, it can become paralyzing and you can find yourself sort of spiraling down and Mm -hmm. it's getting yourself out of that as quickly as possible. And I think um, for some you, when you're just first starting on your healing journey, You spend maybe more time in sort of that circling around the negativity or what you're lacking. And as you continue to heal, you spend less time there. And Mm -hmm. you go back, but maybe for shorter periods of time. And and I think it's absolutely right, finding those things that can help switch your mindset. And I'm the same way a lot of times, just getting out and going for a walk or listening to a podcast, it completely changes my mindset. Yeah. Sometimes it's the really simple things. I don't know, going out and having coffee in public, you know, just, you're like, oh, okay, I'm, there's life out there. It's, people are moving and they're going and they're going forward. You know, I, sometimes it's the simple things. Absolutely. More often than not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what are you most proud of? I'm, I'm most proud of finding my voice. Um, I think finding that voice that was trapped inside that little girl, um, I'm still working on it. Um, When you've been programmed your whole life to be silent and you've mastered secrecy, it's counterintuitive to start talking. It's the opposite of what you've been told to do. I was a brutally shy kid in public especially I just I was an observer and I just really had I didn't want to say anything in fact I used to do this exercise where I would pretend I would do this exercise so that I couldn't be seen because I didn't want my father to see me because I just ended up getting in trouble and I didn't want to be called on by my teacher. So I had this exercise that I would do uh, and I would say it like a mantra, be the wallpaper, be the wallpaper, be the wallpaper. And eventually I became the wallpaper. I felt like I was just the silent person, but I felt most comfortable doing that. And if you've lived this lifestyle of secrecy and being the wallpaper it's counterintuitive to talk so I am really proud that that little girl is finding her voice even though I'm really old I'm still finding that voice and I'm working on it I think that's what it is well you have a beautiful voice and I'm so excited for your book to come out and I know that what you said is going to be so helpful and inspiring to others. Oh, is there you. anything that, that we haven't talked about that you would like to share? There, you know, everybody has history. Everybody's have has some kind of trauma. And I think that's part of being human. I mean, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, we all have that. And when we have trauma, we hold on to our trauma. It could be something, I don't know, minute. The cough, when I went to Starbucks today, 
the coffee was too hot. That might be very traumatic for you. And you might get really pissed mm-hmm. off. And every time you go back to that coffee line, <laughs> you're still holding on to that anger. Or it could be something like, like something what we've experienced where we, we hold on to that trauma. And it might be a part of that trauma that we hold on. And that binds us. That binds us. And it could bind you and make you feel angry or, in my case, uh, embarrassed. Um, or you might have some shame about that. Um, it's like loss of control, too. And we always try to find ways to shake it off. We, we ignore it. Sometimes we ignore it. But that is part of trauma. And I don't have the secret formula for releasing that pain. But when I took and took the actual words that were describing my pain... I wrote them down, and my pain words were, um, I got robbed by having a father like him, and I choose to be angry, because I was so angry, and I didn't want to let go of my anger. Mm -hmm. I just, I wasn't ready to let go of my anger. And when I looked at it that way, and I looked at it on on a piece of paper, I think it was for months, I would look at it and go, yeah, I'm still mad. I would still look at that piece of paper. I'm going, yeah, I'm going to hang on to that. But when I really looked at it and I, there was just a day where I thought, okay, like I'm, I'm done holding this script, this little piece of paper, these words. And I started to write, like write and try to figure out the words that were holding me and not blaming my father, not blaming the person. So I took the person out of that and I just started to look at myself, like what it is that I'm carrying and how do I change those words? And when I rewrote that script, um, it changed my outcome and it helped me a lot. And I don't know if that would help others, but that is something that was a big exercise that I did and it took me forever to do but when I did it was the beginning of a healing process of changing my script I love that (laughs) thank you for sharing that you're welcome well Cindy this has been so fabulous I've absolutely loved talking with you today and thank you so much for being so open and sharing a story that is uncomfortable but yet so beautiful you have such a beautiful family you're such a beautiful person you are doing so many incredible things beyond just the book for other people so thank you for taking time today likewise seriously look at what you're doing thank you thank you for having me thank you thanks for listening please rate review subscribe and share an unexpected launch with a friend Aidan Duncan produced this episode and composed the music.